Part Two, Chapter Thirteen of the Daisy Chain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Mary Young. Part Two, Chapter Thirteen. Shall I sit alone in my chamber and set the chairs by the wall? while you sit with lords and princes it have not a thought at all shall i sit alone in my chamber and duly the table lay whilst you stand up in the diet and have not a word to say old danish ballad oh norman are you come already exclaimed margaret as her brother opened the door bringing in with him the crisp breath of december yes i came away directly after collections how are you margaret pretty brave thank you but the brother and sister both read on each other's features that the additional three months of suspense had told there were traces of toil and study on norman's brow the sunken look about his eyes and the dejected outline of his cheek margaret knew betokened discouragement and though her mild serenity was not changed she was almost transparently thin and pale they had long ago left off asking whether there were tidings and seldom was the subject adverted to, though the whole family seemed to be living beneath a dark shadow. "'How is Flora?' he next asked. "'Going on beautifully, except that Papa thinks she does too much in every way. She declares that she shall bring the baby to show me in another week, but I don't think it will be allowed.' "'And the little lady prospers?' "'Capitally, though I get rather contradictory reports of her.' first papa declared her something surpassing exactly like flora and so i suppose she is but ethel and maida will say nothing for her beauty and blanche calls her a fright but papa is her devoted admirer he does so enjoy having a sort of property again in a baby and george rivers said norman smiling poor george he is very proud of her in his own way he has just been here with a note from flora and actually talked between her and the election, he is wonderfully brilliant. The election? Has Mr. Estale resigned? Have you not heard? He intends it, and George himself is going to stand. The only danger is that Sir Henry Walkingham should think of it. Rivers in Parliament. Well, sound men are wanted. Fancy Flora, our member's wife. How well she will become her position. How soon is it likely to be? quickly i fancy dr spencer who knows all kinds of news papa says he makes a scientific study of gossip as a new branch of comparative anatomy found out from the clevelands that mr estale meant to retire and happened to mention it the last time that flora came to see me it was like firing a train you would have wondered to see how it excited her who usually shows her feelings so little she has been so much occupied with it and so anxious that george should be ready to take the field at once that papa was afraid of his hurting her and ethel comes home declaring that the election is more to her than her baby ethel is apt to be a little hard on flora they are too unlike to understand each other ethel is to be godmother though and flora means to ask mr ogilvy to come and stand i think he will be gone abroad or i should have asked him to fulfil his old promise of coming to us I believe he must be lodged here, if he should come. Flora will have her house full, 
for Lady Leonora is coming. The baby is to be called after her. Indeed, exclaimed Norman. Yes, I thought it unnecessary, as she is not George's aunt, but Flora is grateful to her for much kindness, and she is coming to see Meta. I am afraid Papa is a little hurt that any name but one should have been chosen. Has Meta been comfortable? Dear little thing, everyone says how beautifully she has behaved. She brought all her housekeeping books to Flora at once, and only begged to be made helpful in whatever way might be most convenient. She explained, what we never knew before, how she had the young maids in to read with her, and asked leave to go on. Very few could have been set aside so simply and sweetly in their own house. Flora was sensible of it, I hope. Oh, yes, she took the management, of course, but Meta is charmed with her having the girls in from the village, in turn, to help in the scullery. They have begun family prayers, too, and George makes the stableman go to church, a matter which has been past Meta, as you may guess, though she had been a wonderful little manager, and Flora owned herself quite astonished. I wonder only at her being astonished. Meta owned to Ethel that what had been worst of all to her was the heart-sinking, at finding herself able to choose her occupations, with no one to accommodate them to. But she would not give way. She set up more work for herself at the school, and has been talking of giving singing lessons at Coxmoor, and she forced herself to read, though it was an effort. She has been very happy lately in nursing Flora. Is Ethel there? No, she is, as usual, at Coxmoor. There are great councils about sending Cherry to be trained for her new school. Would Flora be able to see me if I were to ride over to the Grange? You may try, and, if Papa's not there, I dare say she will. At least I shall see Meta, and she may judge. I want to see Rivers, too, so I will ask if the bay is to be had. Ah, you have the clod, I see. Yes, it is too large for this room, but Papa put it here that I might enjoy it, and it is almost a companion. The sky improves so in the sunset light. Norma was soon at Abbotstoke, and, as he drew his rein, Meta's bright face nodded to him from Flora's sitting-room window, and, as he passed the conservatory, the little person met him, with a summons, at once, to his sister. He found Flora on the sofa, with the table beside her, covered with notes and papers. She was sitting up writing, and, though somewhat pale, was very smiling and animated. "'Norman, how kind to come to me the first thing!' Margaret encouraged me to try whether you would be visible. They want to make a regular prisoner of me, said Flora, laughing. Papa is as bad as the old nurse, but he has not been here today, so I have had my own way. Did you meet George? No, but Margaret said he had been with her. I wish you would come. We expect the second post to bring the news that Mr. Estale has accepted the Chiltern Hundreds. If he found it so... He meant to go and talk to Mr. Bramshaw, for, though he is so dull, we must make him agent. Is there any danger of opposition? None at all, if we are soon enough in the field. Papa's name will secure us, and there is no one else on the right side to come forward, so that it is an absolute rescue of the seat. It is the very moment when men of principle are most wanted, said Norman. The questions of the day are no light matters and it is an immense point to save Stoneboro from being represented by one of the Tompkins set. 
exactly so said flora i should feel it a crime to say one word to deter george at a time when every effort must be made to support the right cause one must make sacrifices when the highest interests are at stake flora seemed to thrive upon her sacrifice she had never appeared more brilliant and joyous her brother saw in her a roman matron and the ambition that was inherent in his nature began to find compensation for being crushed as far as regarded himself by soaring for another he eagerly answered that he fully agreed with her and that she would never repent urging her husband to take on himself the duties incumbent on all who had the power highly gratified she asked him to look at a copy of george's intended address which was lying on the table he approved of the tenor but saw a few phrases susceptible of a better point give it she said putting a pen into his hand and he began to interline and erase her fair manuscript talking earnestly and working up himself in the address at the same time till it had grown into a composition far superior to the merely sensible affair it had been eloquence and thought were now in the language and substance and flora was delighted i have been very disrespectful to my niece all this time said norman descending from the clouds of patriotism i do not mean to inflict her mercilessly on her relations said flora but i should like you to see her she is so like blanche the little girl was brought in and flora made a very pretty young mother as she held her in her arms with so much graceful pride norman was perfectly entranced he had never seen his sister so charming or so admirable between her delight in her infant and her self-devotion to the good of her husband and her country acting so wisely and speaking so considerately and praising her dear meta with so much warmth he would never have torn himself away had not the nurse hinted that mrs rivers had had too much excitement and fatigue already to-day and besides he suspected that he might find meta in the drawing-room where he might discuss the whole with her and judge for himself of her state of spirits flora's next visitor was her father who came as the twilight was enhancing the comfortable red brightness of the fire he was very happy in these visits mother and child had both prospered so well and it was quite a treat to be able to expend his tenderness on flora his little grandchild seemed to renew his own happy days and he delighted to take her from her mother and fondle her no sooner was the baby in his arms than flora's hands were busy among the papers and she begged him to ring for lights not yet he said why can't you sit in the dark and give yourself a little rest i want you to hear george's address norman has been looking at it and i hope you will not think it too strong and she turned so that the light might fall on the paper let me see said dr may holding out his hand for it this is a rough copy too much scratched for you to make out she read it accordingly and her father admired it exceedingly norman's touches above all and flora's reading had dovetailed all so neatly together that no one knew where the joins were i will copy it fairly she said if you will show it to dr spencer and ask whether he thinks it too strong mr dodsley too he would be more gratified if he saw it first in private and thought himself consulted dr may was dismayed at seeing her take up her pen and make a desk of her blotting-book and begin her copy by firelight flora my dear he said this must not be have i not told you that you must be content to rest 
I did not get up till ten o'clock and have been lying here ever since. But what has this head of yours been doing? Has it been resting for ten minutes together? Now I know what I am saying, Flora. I warn you that if you will not give yourself needful quiet now, you will suffer for it by and by. Flora smiled and said, I thought I had been very good. But what is to be done when one's wits will work and there is work for them to do? Is not there work enough for them here? said Dr. May, looking at the babe. Your mother used to value such a retirement from care. Flora was silent for a minute, then said, Mr. Estale should have put off his resignation to suit me. It is an unfortunate time for the election. And you can't let the election alone? She shook her head and smiled a negative, as if she would, but that she was under a necessity. My dear, if the election cannot go on without you, it had better not go on at all. She looked very much hurt and turned away her head. Her father was grieved. My dear, he added, I know you desire to be of use, especially to George, but do you not believe that he would rather fail than that you or his child should suffer? No answer. Does he stand by his own wish or yours, Flora? He wishes it. It is his duty, said Flora, collecting her dignity. I can say no more except to beg him not to let you exert yourself. Accordingly, when George came home, the doctor read him a lecture on his wife's over-busy brain, and was listened to, as usual, with gratitude and deference. He professed that he only wished to do what was best for her, but she never would spare herself, and, going to her side, with his heavy, fond solicitude, he made her promise not to hurt herself, and she laughed and consented. The promise was easily given, for she did not believe she was hurting herself, and, as to giving up the election or ceasing secretly to prompt George, that was absolutely out of the question. What could be a greater duty than to incite her husband to usefulness? Moreover, it was but proper to invite Meta's aunt and cousin to see her, and to project a few select dinners for their amusement and the gratification of her neighbors. It was only grateful and cousinly likewise to ask the master of Glenbrocken, and as she saw the thrill of color on Ethel's cheeks at the sight of the address to the Honorable Norman Ogilvy, she thought herself the best of sisters. She even talked of Ogilvy as a second Christian name, but Maida observed that old Aunt Dorothy would call it Leonora Rogovy Rivers, and thus averted it, somewhat to Ethel's satisfaction. Ethel scolded herself many times for wondering whether Mr. Ogilvy would come. What was it to her? Suppose he should. Suppose the rest. What a predicament! How unreasonable and conceited, even to think of such a thing, when her mind was made up. What could result? save tossings to and fro, a passing gratification set against infinite pain, and strife with her own heart and with her father's unselfishness. Had he but come before Flora's marriage? No, Ethel hated herself for the wish that arose for the moment. Far better he should keep away, if, perhaps, without the slightest inclination towards her, his mere name could stir up such a tumult. All, it might be, founded in vanity." rebellious feelings and sense of tedium had once been subdued why should they be roused again the answer came norman ogilvy was setting off for italy and regretted that he could not take abbotstoke on his way 
he desired his kind remembrances and warm Christmas wishes to all his cousins. If Ethel breathed more freely, there was a sense that tranquility is uninteresting. It was, it must be confessed, a flat end to a romance, that all the permanent present effect was a certain softening and a degree more attention to her appearance. And after all, this might, as Flora averred, be ascribed to the Paris outfit having taught her to wear clothes, as well as to that which had awakened the feminine element and removed that sense of not being like other women, which sometimes hangs painfully about girls who have learned to think themselves plain or awkward. There were other causes why it should be a dreary winter to Ethel, under the anxiety that strengthened by duration and the strain of acting cheerfulness for Margaret's sake. Even Mary was a care. Her round, rosy childhood had worn into height and sallowness, and her languor and indifference fretted Miss Bracy, and was hunted down by Ethel, till Margaret convinced her that it was a case for patience and tenderness, which, thenceforth, she hardly gave, even encountering a scene with Miss Bracy, who was much injured by the suggestion that Mary was oppressed by perspective. Poor Mary, no one guessed the tears nightly shed over Harry's photograph. Nor could Ethel quite fathom Norman. He wore the dispirited, burdened expression that she knew too well, but he would not, as formerly, seek relief and confidence to her, shunning the being alone with her, and far too much occupied to offer to walk to Coxmoor. When the intelligence came that good old Mr. Wilmot of Settlesham had peacefully gone to his rest, after a short and painless illness, Tom was a good deal affected in his peculiar silence and ungracious fashion. But Norman did not seek to talk over the event, and the feelings he had entertained two years ago. He avoided the subject, and threw himself into the election matters with an excitement foreign to his nature. He was almost always at Abbotstoke, or attending George Rivers at the committee room at the Swan, talking, writing, or consulting, concocting swibs, and perpetrating bon mots that were the delight of friends and the confusion of foes. Flora was delighted, George adored him, made his eyes dance whenever he came near, Dr. Spencer admired him, and Dr. Hoxton prophesied great things of him. But Ethel did not feel as if he were the veritable Norman, and had an undefined sensation of discomfort when she heard his brilliant repartees and the laughter with which he accompanied them, so unlike his natural, rare, and noiseless laugh. She knew it was false excitement, to drive away the suspense that none dared to avow, but which did not press on them, the less heavily for being endured in silence. Indeed, Dr. May could not help now and then giving way to outbursts of despondency, of which his friend, Dr. Spencer, who made it his special charge to try to lighten his troubles, was usually the kind recipient. And though the bustle of the election was incongruous and seemed to make the leaden weight the more heavy, there was a compensation in the tone of feeling that it elicited which gave real and heartfelt pleasure. Dr. May had undergone numerous fluctuations of popularity. He had always been the same man, excellent in intention, though hasty in action, and heeding neither praise nor censure, and while the main tenor of his course never varied, making many deviations by flying to the reverse of the wrong, most immediately before him, still his personal character gained esteem every year and though sometimes his merits and sometimes his failings gave violent umbrage, he had steadily risen in the estimation of his fellow-townsmen, 
as much as his own inconsistencies and theirs would allow, and every now and then was the favorite with all, save with the few who abused him for tyranny, because he prevented them from tyrannizing. He was just now on the top of the wave, and his son-in-law had nothing to do but to float in on the tide of his favor. The opposite faction attempted a contest, but only rendered the triumph more complete, and gave the gentleman the pleasure of canvassing, and hearing, times without number, that the constituents only wished the candidates were Dr. May himself. His sons and daughters were full of exultation. Dr. Spencer, much struck, rallied Dick on his influence, and Dr. May, the drops of warm emotion trembling on his eyelashes, smiled and bade his friend see him making a church rate. The addresses and letters that came from the Grange were so admirable that Dr. May often embraced Norman's steady opinion that George was a very wise man. If Norman was unconscious how much he contributed to these compositions, he knew far less how much was Flora's. In his ardor he crammed them both and conducted George when Flora could not be at his side. George himself was a personable man, wrote a good, bold hand, would do as he was desired, and was not easily put out of countenance. He seldom committed himself by talking, and when a speech was required, was brief and to the purpose. He made a very good figure, and in the glory of victory, Ethel herself began to grow proud of him, and the children's great object in life was to make the jackdaws cry, Rivers forever! Flora had always declared that she would be at Stoneboro for the nomination. No one believed her until three days before she presented herself and her daughter before the astonished Margaret, who was too much delighted to be able to scold. She had come away on her own responsibility, and was full of triumph. To come home in this manner, after having read, Rivers forever, on all the dead walls, might be called that for which she had lived. She made no stay. She had only come to show her child, and established a precedent for driving out, and Margaret had begun to believe the apparition a dream, when the others came in, some from Coxmoor, others from the committee room at the Swan. "'So she brought the baby!' exclaimed Ethel. "'I should have thought she would not have taken her out before her christening.' "'Ethel,' said Dr. Spencer, "'permit me to make a suggestion. "'When relations live in the same neighborhood, "'there is no phrase to be more avoided than, "'I should have thought.' "'The nomination day brought Flora, Meta, baby and all, "'to be very quiet, as was said. "'But how could that be, "'when every boy in the house was frantic, "'and the men scarcely less so? "'Aubrey and Gertrude and the two jackdaws "'each had a huge blue and orange rosette, and the two former went about roaring, Rivers forever, without the least consideration for the baby, who would have been decked in the same manner, if Ethel would have heard of it without indignation, at her wearing any color before christening white. As to Jack and Jill, though they could say their lessons, they were too much distressed by their ornaments to do aught but lurk in corners and strive to peck them off. Flora comported herself in her usual quiet way, and tried to talk of other things, though a carnation spot in each cheek showed her anxiety and excitement. She went with her sisters to look out from Dr. Spencer's windows towards the town hall. Her husband gave her his arm as they went down the garden, and Ethel saw her talking earnestly to him, and pressing his arm with her other hand to enforce her words, but if she did tutor him, 
he was hardly visible and he was very glad of whatever counsel she gave she spoke not a word after the ladies were left with aubrey who was in despair at not being allowed to follow hector and tom but was left as his prematurely classical mind expressed it like the gaulish woman with the impedimenta in the marshes whereas tom had had an insult to injury by a farewell to jack among the maidens Neta tried to console him by persuading him that he was their protector and he began to think there was need of a guard when a mighty cheer caused him to take refuge behind ethel even when assured that it was anything but terrific he gravely declared that he thought margaret would want him but he could not cross the garden without Neta to protect him she would not allow anyone else to relieve her from the doughty champion and thereby she missed the spectacle it might be that she did not regret it for though it would have been unkind to refuse to come in with her brother and sister her wound was still too fresh for crowds turmoil and noisy rejoicing to be congenial she did not withdraw her hand which aubrey squeezed harder at each resounding shout nor object to his conducting her to see his museum in the dark corner of the attics most remote from the tumult the loss was not great the others could hear nothing distinctly and see only a wilderness of heads but the triumph was complete dr may had been cheered enough to satisfy even hector george rivers had made a very fair speech and hurrahs had covered all deficiencies hector had shouted till he was as hoarse as a jackdaws the opposite candidate had never come forward at all tompkins was hiding his diminished head and the gentlemen had nothing to report but success and were in the highest spirits by and by blanche was missing and ethel going in quest of her spied a hem of blue merino peeping out under all the cloaks in the hall cupboard and found the poor little girl sobbing in such distress that it was long before any explanation could be extracted but at last it was revealed when the door had been shut and they stood in the dark half stifled among the cloaks that george's spirit had taken his old facetious style with blanche and in the very hearing of hector the misery of such jokes to a sensitive child conscious of not comprehending their scope is incalculable and blanche having been a baby coquette was the more susceptible she hid her face again from the very sound of her own confession and resisted ethel's attempts to draw her out of the musty cupboard declaring that she could never see either of them again ethel in vain assured her that george was gone to the dinner at the swan nothing was effectual but being told that for her to notice what had passed was a sure way to call hector's attention thereto when she bridled emerged and begged to know whether she looked as if she had been crying poor child she could never again be unconscious but at least she was rendered peculiarly afraid of a style of notice that might otherwise have been a temptation ethel privately begged flora to hint to george to alter his style of wit and the suggestion was received better than the blundering manner deserved flora was too exulting to take offence and her patronage of all the world was as full-blown as her ladylike nature allowed ethel she did not attempt to patronize but she promised all the sights in london to the children and masters to mary and blanche and she perfectly overwhelmed Miss Bracy with orphan asylums for her sisters. She would have liked nothing better than dispersing cards with Mrs. Rivers prominent among the recommenders of the case. A fine coming out for you, little lady, 
said she to her baby, when taking leave that evening. If it was good luck for you to make your first step in life upwards, what is this? Excelsior, said Ethel, and Flora smiled, well pleased, but she had not caught half the meaning. May it be the right Excelsior, added Ethel, in a low voice that no one heard, and she was glad they did not. They were all triumphant, and she could not tell why she had a sense of sadness, and thought of Flora's story long ago of the girl who ascended Mont Blanc, and for what? All she had to do at present was to listen to Miss Bracy, who was sure that Mrs. Rivers thought Mary and Blanche were not improved, and was afraid she was ungrateful for all the intended kindness to her sister. Ethel had more sympathy here, for she had thought that Flora was giving herself airs, and she laughed and said her sister was pleased to be in a position to help her friends, and tried to turn it off, but ended by stumbling into allowing that prosperity was apt to make people over-lavish of offers of kindness. "'Dear Miss Ethel, you understand so perfectly. There is no one like you,' cried Miss Bracy, attempting to kiss her hand. If Ethel had not spoken rightly of her sister, she was sufficiently punished. What she did was to burst into a laugh and exclaim, "'Miss Bracy, Miss Bracy, I can't have you so sentimental.' I am the worst person in the world for it. I have offended. You cannot feel with me. Yes, I can, when it is sense. But please don't treat me like a heroine. I am sure there is quite enough in the world that is worrying, without picking shades of manner to pieces. It is the sure way to make an old crab of me, and so I am going off. Only one parting piece of advice, Miss Bracy. Read Frank Fairleigh and put everybody out of your head. And, thinking she had been savage about her hand, Ethel turned back and kissed the little governess's forehead, wished her good night, and ran away. She had learned that, to be rough and merry, was the best way of doing Miss Bracy good in the end, and so she often gave herself the present pain of knowing that she was being supposed careless and hard-hearted, but the violent affection for her proved that the feeling did not last. Ethel was glad to sit by the fire at bedtime and think over the day, outwardly so gay, inwardly so fretting and perplexing. It was the first time that she had seen much of her little niece. She was no great baby handler, nor had she any of the phrases adapted to the infant mind, but that pretty little serene blue-eyed girl had been her chief thought all day, and she was abashed by recollecting how little she had dwelt on her own duties as her sponsor in the agitations excited by the doubts about her coadjutor. She took out her prayer book and read the service for baptism, recollecting the thoughts that had accompanied her youngest sister's orphan christening. The vain pomp and glory of the world and all covetous desires of the same. They seemed far enough off then, and now, poor little Leonora. Ethel knew that she had judged her sister hardly, yet she could not help picturing to herself the future. A young lady, trained for fashionable life, serious teaching not omitted, but right made the means of rising in the world, taught to strive secretly, but not openly, for admiration, a scheming for her marriage, a career like Flora's own. Ethel could scarcely feel that it would not be a mockery to declare, on her behalf, that she renounced the world. But alas, where was not the world? Ethel blushed at having censored others when, so lately, she had herself been oblivious of the higher duty. 
She thought of the prayer, including every Christian in holy and loving intercession. I pray not that thou wouldest take them out of the world, but that thou wouldest keep them from the evil. Keep her from the evil. That shall be my prayer for my poor little Leonora. His grace can save her, were the surrounding evil far worse than ever it is likely to be. The intermixture with good is the trial, and is it not so everywhere, ever since the world and the church have seemed fused together? But she will soon be the child of a father who guards his own, and, at least, I can pray for her and her dear mother. May I only live better, that so I may pray better, and act better, if ever I should have to act. There was a happy family gathering on New Year's Day, and Flora, who had kindly felt her way with Meta, finding her not yet ready to enjoy a public festivity for the village, added a supplement to the Christmas beef, that a second dinner might be eaten at home in honor of Miss Leonora Rivers. Lady Leonora was highly satisfied with her visit, which impressed her far more in favor of the Abbotstoke neighborhood than in the days of poor old Mr. Rivers. Flora knew everyone and gave little select dinner parties, which, by her good management, even George, at the bottom of the table, could not make heavy. Dr. Spencer enjoyed them greatly and was an unfailing resource for conversation, and as to the Hoxtons, Flora felt herself amply repaying the kindness she had received in her young lady days when she walked down to the dining-room with the portly headmaster or saw his good lady sit serenely admiring the handsome rooms. A very superior person, extremely pleasing and agreeable, was the universal verdict on Mrs. Rivers. Lady Leonora struck up a great friendship with her and was delighted that she meant to take Meta to London. The only fault that could be found with her was that she had so many brothers, and Flora, recollecting that her ladyship mistrusted those brothers, avoided encouraging their presence at the Grange, and took every precaution against any opening for the suspicion that she threw them in the way of her little sister-in-law. Nor had Flora forgotten the ladies' committee or Coxmore. As to the muses, they gave no trouble at all. Exemplary civilities about the chair passed between the members, ladies, and Mrs. Ledwich, ending in Flora's insisting that priority and office should prevail, feeling that she could well afford to yield the post of honor, since anywhere she was the leader. She did not know how much more conformable the ladies had been ever since they had known Dr. Spencer's opinion, and yet he only believed that they were grateful for good advice, and went about among them, easy, good-natured, and utterly unconscious that for him sparkled Mrs. Ledwidge's bugles, and for him waved every spinster's ribbon, from Miss Rich down to Miss Boulder. The point carried by their united influence was Charity Elwood's being sent for six months finishing at the diocesan training school, while a favorite pupil teacher from Abbotstoke took her place at Coxmoor. Dr. Spencer looked at the training school, and talked Mrs. Ledwich into magnanimous forgiveness of Mrs. Elwood. Cherry dreaded the ordeal, but she was willing to do anything that was thought right, and likely to make her fitter for her office. End of Part 2 Chapter 13 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona